All right, if you have your Bibles here, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4. If you're paging through your Bible, it's somewhere between Hebrews and Revelation. Otherwise, there's no shame in just finding your content page and looking for 1 Peter. Uh, we are spending, as a church, nine weeks studying the book of First Peter and asking God to speak to us as a church. And uh, we wanted to deep dive into some of these texts because we believe that God's Word is powerful to transform us. Um, so the Oxford Dictionary word of the year in 2013 was the word selfie. Selfie. Uh, most of us know what a selfie is. It's basically where you take your, for your camera, usually your camera phone, and, uh, the, and kind of what's behind you is unimportant. What's most important is you. All right? So it's kind of me at the beach, uh, me with my kids, me eating an ice cream, me confused as to which shirts I, buy, I should buy, me again, me again, me again. All right? Selfie became quite a phenomenon. Now, there's nothing wrong with photos of yourself, but I think what we're starting to see is this rise of self and the rise of the sense of my own importance. Uh, someone started realizing that uh, we don't always want to see our fat arm in the photo, so they came up with a selfie stick just to make selfies that much better and professional. And these days, if you really want to up your selfie game, you can go out and buy a selfie drone. All right, so you can buy a drone just so that you can take perfect selfies. And then there are over 10,000 videos online to help you take the perfect selfie. All right, so all of you over 30, before you judge those under 30, we're all like this. Uh, have you ever looked at a class photo or a group photo or a small group photo? Who's the first person you look for? You. All right, you. And if you look good, you're like, this is a great photo. And if you look horrible, this is a horrible photo. Comedian Michael McIntyre says we do the same thing with our homes. Do you remember the first time you went onto Google Earth? where Google spent billions of dollars just trying to give us a visual perspective of the entire planet. What's the first address you plugged into Google Earth? Your home. I mean, you could have walked outside and got the same view, a better one for that matter, but you want to get, I mean, you could have gone to the Taj Mahal, you could have gone to the White House, you could have gone to Alaska, but we go to our homes, all right? So we're living in this selfie world, uh, which would be quite confusing if we had to get every single person who has ever lived on the face of the earth into a room, that'll confuse most of them. Because for most cultures, for most of history, they used to elevate the collective above the individual. They used to elevate the culture above the individual. They used to elevate the tribe above the individual. We know that wonderful African word that tries to communicate that to us, Ubuntu. All right, and, and yet we flipped it. We've placed the individual above the collective. Now, last week, we had the challenge about living holy lives. But if we import the sort of selfie faith into our Christianity, again, it's all about you and, and it's all about me. And this passage is going to challenge us that we're part of a collective. And the collective is beautiful and the collective is wonderful. And we are going to be elevating our view of the collective because we're better together. So let's read together how this happens in First Peter chapter 2, verses 4. Um, for those of you who've been part of a life group, I don't know what it's been like for you. It's been wonderful, uh, our own life group, just guys saying, listen, while you were preaching, I was reading back or I was reading ahead or I went home and the next day I just read a little bit more of 1 Peter and I really want to encourage you to do that, that you have first-hand content, uh, contact with this content and allowing God's Word as you expose yourself more and more to transform you. But let us see how God speaks to us this morning. First Peter chapter 2 and we're going to start off reading from verse 4 to 8. Mm -hmm. 
As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. But now to you who believe, the stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So just as we press pause on these verses, these verses are trying to help us understand Jesus as the cornerstone. Now, I am horrible when it comes to DIY. I've never worked in building, but I understand a cornerstone is part of the building. In fact, it is the most important part of the building. It frames the building. It sets the lines. It holds the structure. And these verses are saying, for those who believe in Jesus, He is the cornerstone. He's the one who holds the structure. He's the one who sets the line. He's the one who keeps the whole building uh, integrous. But for others, this cornerstone is not setting the tone, it's not setting the structure, it's not keeping everything together. For others who disbelieve, Jesus becomes something that we literally fall over, we trip over, we stub our toes on Him. Now, I, th- I think we, we kind of know this intuitively. We live in a culture today where it's okay to talk about the universe. It's okay to talk about, you know, I've got spirituality. It's okay to talk about loving and serving the poor. But it's not okay to talk about Jesus. You see, the minute we talk about Jesus, you can literally see people trip over him. We can literally see people stub their toe on the name of Jesus. Now, that's not a new thing. In Acts chapter 17, we see Paul going into this Greek culture um, he, he's engaging with a bunch of Athenian uh, philosophers. This is like getting, you know, UJ, all the philosophy, philosophy departments of UJ and Vits together and having a good old debate and preach with them. All right, that's Paul in Acts 17. They don't know who Moses is. They don't know who the, what the Torah is. They don't know who, uh, they definitely don't know who Jesus is. And he's preaching to them. And while not using this language, if you follow Paul's discourse, I'm going to use some sort of uh, high grade language here. You see, Paul goes through uh, the cosmological argument for God and then he goes through the ontological argument for God and then he starts talking about anthropology and all these very clever philosophers are saying yes, 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 yes God is like that no God is not like that I agree with you and all these philosophers are nodding their heads and then Paul mentions the name of Jesus and they stub their toes they stub their toes the scriptures actually say that some believed and and some famous uh, philosophers came from that Others said, Paul, you know what? I, I want to hear more about this. This is very intriguing. And it said, others sneered at him. So you were okay to talk about re- religion and love, but the name of Jesus causes many to stumble. But these scriptures say, for those of us who believe, Jesus is precious to us. He's our cornerstone. He is precious to us. You see, every single one of us, in this planet has to answer this most important question. Who is Jesus and so what? Who is Jesus and so what? And this is what this passage is getting us to understand. But for us who believe, he is precious. The stone is precious. The one who trusts in him will not be put to shame and he is our cornerstone. 
We all actually have a cornerstone. We maybe don't use that language. We all have a center. We all have something around which we build and construct our lives. We all have something that we are hoping is gonna give us meaning and purpose. For some in this world, it's, it's beauty in our physical looks. So we spend all of our time and, and effort and anxiety ensuring that we look okay to the world. But here's the thing, when that goes, either due to age or sometimes we just in an accident or we lose our health, our cornerstone crumbles and therefore our whole building falls down. For some of us, the cornerstone is not beauty. For some of us, the cornerstone is being important or power. And because that's my cornerstone and because my identity is built on that and that sets the tone for my life and that gives my house sort of structure and meaning, I'm gonna do whatever it takes as long as I'm important, as long as people see me as important. But guess what happens? We lose our job, the economy turns around. Something happens and, and we're not in a position of importance and our whole world falls down. You see, these make horrible cornerstones. In fact, anything other than Jesus Christ makes horrible cornerstones. And I think some of us this morning are gonna be faced with the very real challenge to make Jesus your cornerstone. To make him the one that gives you definition. He's the one that gives you purpose. Guys, no other cornerstone will die for you. No other cornerstone will give you such scandalous grace. So I hope that for some of you this morning, we're gonna walk out of this building having put Jesus as our cornerstone. So this is kind of Peter's basic idea. Here's Jesus, he's our cornerstone. And everything he says from this point onwards is trying to show that if we build ourselves on him, and again, there's always, it's always the we, it's always the ourselves, it's always the togetherness, it's always the collective. If we build on Jesus, we become a something. And there's these kind of word pictures that Peter appeals to, to help you and I understand that as we become a something built upon Jesus, our cornerstone, we've got great meaning and purpose in this world. As we read through this, and I promise you, I will get to the verses that are coming here. We're going to see that Peter gives great value to the something. The most common word that is used in the scriptures for this collective is the church. So this church, God's people. And we're gonna see in these verses that God, that Peter gives great value to the church. Now, this is not because Peter had the perfect church. This is not because in Peter's church, everyone served. This is not because in Peter's church, there was 100% of people tithing. It's not because in Peter's church, 100% of the church was involved in small groups and 100% of the church was living out their faith Monday to Saturday. And it's not because Peter never got nasty emails in his inbox. He never had the perfect church. So why does Peter have such an exalted view of the church? It's because he sees the church through Christ's eyes, not his own. And as much as the church was fallible then and is fallible now, he's got this high view because after all, the church is Christ's bride. Now, it's become quite common to say, you know what, I, I love Jesus, it's just not the church. And I kind of know what you, what you mean and, and we'll, we'll get to that, but I just want you to think for a second. I mean, my wife, uh, I don't know where she's sitting this morning, her, Bianca, and you came up to me after the service and said, Stephen, you know what, I've got lots of time for you. I like you, I honor you, I respect you, I love you. I just don't like and honor and love and respect your wife. 
I will have to stop myself from punching you in the throat right there. Because how can you say you love me, but you dishonor my wife? And yet we do that to Christ all the time. Peter's got this high view of the church. You see, it's quite easy to criticize the church. And sometimes the church, Christians globally, historically, kind of, you know, we've kind of earned some of that. But it's very easy to throw stones at the church. And maybe we're thinking of historical stuff like the Crusades. Maybe we're thinking of some of the sex scandals that we kind of see coming on the news semi-regularly. Maybe we're thinking of the hypocrisy within the church. And here's the thing. At no stage does Jesus say, that's okay. Uh, We're always going to be preaching holiness. We're always going to be preaching faith in Christ. Last week, we're always going to be preaching the fact that God wants us to be holy. God is wanting to conform us into his image but here's the thing the church is filled with sinners and by definition the church is filled with sinners last week we used the phrase grace accepts scandalously that's what offended the pharisees of jesus time jesus you're accepting that 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 prostitutes you're sitting down and eating with these outcasts of society and jesus is going yes exactly because my grace accepts scandalously So the church should be filled with people who need grace and know it. Churches should be filled with people who need Christ and know it and are on a journey somewhere. But having said that, it's it's so easy to do this. And here's kind of my experience and my observation, and I think many church leaders' experience and observation, is that often those who are doing the most criticism are doing it from the cheap seats. As someone once said, the loudest booze come from the cheapest seats. You see, when you're not engaged, you've got your 40 rand latte, you're sitting behind your Apple Mac and you're getting all your theology from the internet, it's very easy to throw stones at the church. But when we start to see the church through Christ's eyes, when we start to see the church through the eyes of the scriptures as we're gonna see them now, we have a prior commitment to the church. Yes, it may break our heart when we see the church doing some of these things that it's done. And by the way, that includes you and that includes me. May break our heart, but man, oh man, we're going to roll up our sleeves and we're going to sacrifice and we're going to serve and we're going to commit and we're going to love and we're going to be this community of grace. We're going to be engaging this world and you won't have time to say dumb stuff on Facebook. All right, that's all I'm saying. So there's my rant for the day. Um, let's see how these scriptures teach us that we, this collective, are of such value, gives us meaning. In these verses that we've read already, we've seen that Jesus is the cornerstone, but the way we see it in 2 verses 5, it talks about this temple language. It says, you are like living stones being built together to become a spiritual house. Now, these Jewish Christians would have understood exactly what Peter was referring to. This is referring to the temple because of the temple in Judaism. This was the locus of God's presence. Not that he was limited to the temple, but it was the focus of his presence. Paul says, now you, plural, are the, 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 the temple of God. You're the temple that God dwells in. And Peter says, you are like living stones. You're not granite. You're not inanimate. You're not made of basalt. You are the living stones. Corporate being built together to be a spiritual house. Part of what this means for us is that all Christians have to be part 
of a spiritual house. I think sometimes we're like those pile of bricks. You know, when someone builds a home, there's always a pile of bricks left over. I think sometimes we're more like that. Or if you walk around any one of your homes, there's always a few bricks lying around. Sometimes we're like that. And Peter's saying, no, 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 there's a collective here. The collective has value. God is doing something. So we need to be part of the spiritual house. Let me remind you of the context into which Peter is writing 2,000 years ago. He's writing to believers who are in Turkey. Or what we now know is modern day Turkey. This was the Roman Empire. Nero was the Roman emperor and he was persecuting Christians. He was literally imprisoning them, putting them to death, using them to, to uh, violently entertain people in the circuses of that time. You know, it would have been easier for them to have a private faith. It's just between me and God. I'm not part of a spiritual house. I'm just a spiritual stone. It's just me. I get to kind of just have this private little interaction between me and God. And the reality is, and the archaeological evidence shows this, that these believers risked greatly to be part of a collective. These believers risked greatly because suddenly it's not just one guy. No, no, no. There's 30 people together. There's 50 people together. There's 80 people together. By gathering, they risked their lives. You and I, Sunday morning, oh, I need a few extra hours sleep. Well, it's too hot, it's too cold. Sermon's too long, too short. Worship's too loud, too soft. Coffee's too hot, too cold. And we could go on and on. So I'm not gonna come today. I'm not gonna be part of the collective. So the challenge is we're part of a spiritual house being built together for the presence of God. Now, there are a number of other word pictures that come out of the text. Let's read from verse nine onwards. For you, again, plural, you are a chosen people, plural, a royal priesthood, plural, a holy nation, plural, a people, plural, belonging to God, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. One of the phrases to describe God's people here is that we are a royal priesthood. Earlier it talks about being a holy priesthood and here a royal priesthood. Now, I know next to nothing about the royal family. I don't know what it means to have a king or queen. I don't know, I don't know what the royal family does. I have honestly no idea. So when I hear the word royal, I'm kind of picturing like Disney princes and princesses, you know, uh, with weird crowns. And so that's my ignorance. I don't know about you, but this is what I do know about royalty. You can only be part of royalty by blood. Doesn't matter how much money you have. You cannot get into the royal family. And if you marry in, then your blood is going to determine that your children have royal blood. And Peter's saying, guys, you, you are being persecuted. Your brothers and your sisters are being torn apart in circuses for their faith. And although the world despises you, I want to tell you something about you. Your royalty is not connected to Jerusalem. Your royalty is not connected to Rome and to Caesar. Your royal blood is connected to the God of creation. And because you are his children adopted into his family, you are royalty. Not only are we royalty, we're a royal priesthood. Now, as I say that word priest, I don't know what comes into your mind. I don't know if you've ever been in a church that has had priests or maybe you're thinking more Old Testament priests. I'm not entirely sure. In the Old Testament, priests were special people set apart to represent, just get this, represent people to God. 
They would stand between the people and God, appeal to God's mercy, and represent the people to God. But when we get into the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2 verses 3 says this, For there is one God, because now we're in a new covenant. Jesus has come. He has broken the curtain that separates us and God's holiness. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Which is why in the New Testament, there's no one person you need to go to to encounter God. We all have direct access to the Holy of Holies in Jesus Christ. You don't have to go through me. You don't have to go through any other man. We go straight to Christ and enter the holiness of God. Now, sometimes we kind of know that, but we live this sort of idea of a priesthood out maybe with a bit more of a nuanced flavor. Sometimes the way we see it is, well, you know, guys, you stand up here. People who stand up here, people who preach, you know, they're like, and we wouldn't say priests, but no, those are kind of the real Christians and there's the rest of us. You know, they're the guys that, you know, they're holy, they're set apart, and then there's me. And these scriptures are saying, no, 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 every single one of you, by virtue of being a child of God, is a priest. Every single one of you has direct access to Christ. Every single one of you receives forgiveness straight from Christ. Every single one of you can serve one another in the name and the power of Christ. Every single one of you has been called to serve and represent God to those sitting around you. Which is why, by the way, I don't try and be everyone's personal priest. It's why I don't try and be everyone's BFF. Do you know why? Well, logistically, it's just impossible. There's only one me. There's one Bianca, one Craig, one Colin, one one Emily. We could go on. But theologically, biblically, it's just wrong. It's wrong. We are all a priesthood. I'm playing my role and you are playing your role and we serve one another with God's empowering, representing God to one another. We are royalty and we're a priesthood. Let's move on to some of the other word pictures that Peter's using to describe us and and recognize our high value and high calling. He says here, we're a people belonging to God. And it's kind of said and implied a number of ways here that we're a people belonging to God. It says, we're a chosen people. We're a people belonging to God. Some translations say, we are God's special possession. Something we spoke about last year, and I think it's worth just revisiting. Is you see, someone's value or something's value is not determined by who you are, but by whose you are. I think I used this example last year. Uh, You may have seen me playing in the worship team. I love playing electric guitar. And uh, since I was a kid, one of the guitars I always wanted was a USA Fender Stratocaster. And if I had to just take my credit card out and walk into a music store around Joburg and and buy a USA Fender Stratocaster, you're looking at about 15, 18, 20,000 rand. Or you could buy a secondhand USA Fender Stratocaster for $2 million dollars. Now, why would you do that? It's because Jimi Hendrix used to own it. You see, it's not who you are, it's whose you are, and the value is determined by whose you are. So if you're kind of, you know, a pair of underpants owned by Jimi Hendrix, someone's going to pay big bucks for it. 
And that's the other thing that determines our value is how much someone is willing to pay for something. And last week we read these verses. You might just want to read back and see that you and I were not bought with perishable things like gold and silver. God, who owns the entire cosmos, did not just write a check for us. It says you and I were bought with the precious blood of his son. So do you want to know, do you have value in this world? And maybe we're in a world that increasingly devalues faith, that increasingly devalues Jesus, that increasingly devalues the church, devalues our morality. Jesus is saying, listen, you want to know how valuable you are? I was willing to pay for you with the blood of my son. And your values are not determined by who you are, but whose you are. And you are mine. You are a people of God, a chosen nation, God's treasured possession. So let's just recap these ideas. We're, a, a, we're living stones connected to the living one as our cornerstone. And we are being built together to be a spiritual house. We are a royal and a holy priesthood. We have the royal blood of God in us as we become his children. We are priesthood that we go straight to Christ and we serve and worship him directly and we serve and worship one another because of that. And finally, we are a people, we are a collective and we have great value. And while the world maybe does not recognize that the time will come when every eye will see who Jesus truly is and who his people truly are. But we can't stop there. It's wonderful to pat ourselves on the back and say, you know, it's, you know, we're so lovely, we're so wonderful, we're so treasured, and we are. But if we stop there, we run into the danger of becoming a country club. We just exist for our own purposes. And this is why, you know, we drive home and we say, so did you enjoy the sermon? And we kind of determine our Sunday experience by whether or not I enjoyed the sermon, whether or not I enjoyed the worship, whether or not I enjoyed the coffee, whether or not I enjoyed the, no, brownies were a bit stale today. Ah, oh, no, 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 I didn't have a wonderful time. And I said this last day, and I'm going to say it again. It's not about you. It is just simply not about you. We, this collective, exist for a purpose. And it's so plain here. It says here, we are this chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That you may. This is the reason we exist, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. We become a people, we become a collective who point towards Jesus. We become a people, a collective who point towards, we make much of Christ and we point to what he has done for us and we call others to see his grace and to see his value and to see his beauty and be part of this wonderful story of God. And in the weeks to come, we're going to unpack more. What does it look like on a Monday to a Saturday? So easy here. But Peter gets so practical and I'm looking forward to that. As we start drawing to a close, we learned last week that holiness starts with thinking differently. Thinking differently. Romans 12 verses 2, it talks about us being transformed meaning becoming holy, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And the most simplest way I could try and communicate that to you is if we are to think differently, it's quite simply this. Agree with God. Agree with God, not only when He agrees with you, but even if we need to spend some time wrestling with Him, but coming to the point where God, I now agree with you. And some of us this morning need to agree with God on His church. 
Some of us this morning, and I know you look at your own lives, you look at the lives around you, you see what makes the headlines and it breaks your heart, it breaks mine. Because God wants so much more for you. God wants to do so much more in you. He wants to do so much more through you and He wants so much more for the world through His people. But the church is not beautiful because of our righteousness. The church is beautiful because of Christ's righteousness and who He says we are. And some of us need to agree with God on that. So easy to throw stones. And some of us need to say, Jesus, this is your bride. This is your people who you value above all things. And I'm gonna agree with you. And then for some of us, we need to move on from there. We're gonna get off the benches. We're gonna get get in the game. For some of you, you're gonna be thinking about ways to not only live out an individual faith, but a together faith. Maybe for some of you, that means, and it's not the only part of faith, by no means, But for some of you, maybe it just means part of the togetherness more regularly. Maybe it means instead of coming once a month, coming twice a month. Instead of coming twice a month, coming three or four times a month. Being part of the spiritual house that God is doing something in. Maybe it means not just being part of this large gathering where we can just be a number, but being part of a small group. We're in people's homes. Where we've got brothers and sisters that are praying for me and walking with me. Is it always perfect? No. But again, we're not relying on people, we're relying on what God is doing. Maybe for some of us, it's gonna be joining a ministry and actually committing to serve. Maybe for some, it's gonna be committing to work with others for the good of those outside the community. Maybe for some of you, it's gonna mean taking Emil and Emma's challenge here and saying, you know what? We get to worship in such freedom and we get to enjoy such great times of gathering, but there are Christians today, not 2,000 years ago, today that do not have this freedom and are being persecuted for their faith. There will be people dying today because they claim Jesus as the Lord and Savior. And here's an opportunity for you to roll up your arms of prayer and get stuck in and have your heart poured out for these people because they're part of the collective. They're part of the spiritual house that God wants to do great things in their nations and and through them. So guys, I don't know what God is saying to you and and I could go on and on just trying to imagine it. But folks, let's pray. Father, what a challenging message and at the same time, what an encouraging message that we are part of a great work that you're doing. And you call us to be in this together. You call us to value the collective. And Jesus, we just see what you did for us, laying down your life, taking our sins upon your shoulders so that we can have your righteousness. God, and as life by life sets you as their cornerstone, so we are being built together. God, we are a priesthood calling to serve and worship you and serve each other. We are royalty. You ascribe such great value to us even when we don't deserve it. We are a treasured people that you paid the highest price for. And God, I pray that as we change our minds, as we think differently, 
as we agree with you that something would shift in our hearts, that as we live out our lives, we would recognize what you're calling us to, to live lives that make much of Christ and declare his praises. And also that we do this together. Father God, I pray that you'd speak to us as individuals. What are you calling us to? Maybe just say that question to God yourself. Lord, what are you calling me to? If this is true, what do you want me to do? How am I gonna be increasingly part of the spiritual house? Both locally here at Riverside Community Church. Nationally, the Church of South Africa. And internationally, God's chosen people. Father, it's not about me. It's about you and your glory and serving others with the grace that you've given us. Guys, if God's calling you to something, I just encourage you to acknowledge that. Say, just in in your own mind's eye, Lord, this is what you're calling me to. Just agree with him on that. This is what you're isolating me. What you're identifying in me. This is just between you and God. So Father, as you're speaking, I pray that you're calling us out. We trust that you are building your kingdom. You're inviting us all to build our foundations on you. So God, would you continue this great work beyond when we conclude now? God, would you continue this great work tomorrow? Would you continue this great work in the weeks and the months and the years to come? We ask you to build this spiritual house, Riverside Community Church. We ask you to build the spiritual houses in Joburg that they too may declare your praises. God, we ask that you're doing this around the world, Father. Your people living for you. In Jesus' name, amen.